You are now listening to the September 19th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, heart and soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with Story of Kings. This week, we will continue with the story of King Asa. Just to recap quickly, Asa was the third king of Judah after Rehoboam and Abijah. He reigned over Judah for 41 years. He trusted God and during his time, the southern king of Judah enjoyed peace and stability while the northern kingdom of Israel suffered from one turmoil to another. During the time of peace God provided, Asa worked diligently to rid of idol worshiping in Judah. The Bible records how Asa obeyed all the covenants he made with God. Supporting text comes from 1 Kings chapter 15 verses 13 to 15 and 2 Chronicles chapter 15 verses 16 to 18. Here is an excerpt from 2 Chronicles chapter 15. It demonstrates how zealous Asa was in cracking down on idol worshiping. According to verses 16 to 18, he also removed Maacah, the mother of King Asa, from the position of queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah, And Asa cut down her horrid image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not removed from Israel. Nevertheless, Asa's heart was blameless in all his days. He brought into the house of God the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. The excerpt makes reference to Maacah, the mother of King Asa. It is not entirely clear whether the woman he removed from her esteemed position of queen mother was really his mother that gave him birth. In the Nazvi version of the Bible, this person is described as the mother of King Asa, but in different translation, she is shown as his grandmother, Maacah. So what is going on? According to the theologians, The Bible uses words like mother, father, grandmother, or grandfather, often synonymously to refer to someone in one's ancestry that garners honor and respect. What is important here is not whether Maacah was Asa's mother or grandmother, but how this woman with the title of queen mother worshipped idols and did not seek God. Because of her idol worshipping, Asa removed her from her position. Asa was steadfast in his zeal for the Lord and did not make exceptions when it came to idol worshiping, even if they were a close family member. Further, Asa brought his father's dedicated things, his own dedicated things, silver, gold, and utensils, into the house of God and worshiped God only. Because Asa and his people sought God with strong commitment, God gave them peace until the 35th year of Asa's reign. 
In 2 Chronicles chapter 15, verses 19 and chapter 16, verse 1, the Bible says that there was no war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. Unfortunately, in the 36th year, King Baasha of Israel made a move against Judah. Until then, after the war with Zerah the Ethiopian, Judah had enjoyed a period of peace and stability. This conflict with Baasha marked a significant point of departure for Asa because in his effort to resolve this conflict, Asa resorted to human means rather than spiritual means by walking with God. Here is how the conflict began. You may recall how Judah enjoyed peace and stability while Israel was going through one turmoil after another and kept changing their kings. Many people from Israel began moving to Judah, seeking a better life. Of course, Baasha, as king, did not like to see his people migrating over to Judah. In response, Baasha fortified a city located between Israel and Judah so that he could control the migration. This city was Ramah. It was a city located in the north of Jerusalem and was an important hub located between Israel and Judah. When Baasha occupied Ramah, that posed a serious threat to Judah because of its close proximity to Jerusalem, Judah's central city for politics and religion. Asa had to respond. Facing this imminent threat, it was not clear why Asa did not seek God's help, but he responded by resorting to political and strategic maneuvering. Here is what is said in 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 18 to 22. Then Asa took all the silver and the gold, which were left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord in the treasury of the king's house, and he delivered them into the hands of his servants. And King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad, the son of Tabramon, the son of Hezion, king of Aram, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me, as between my father and your father. Behold, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Go and break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadad listened to King Asa and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel and conquered Asian, Dan, Abel-Beth-Meachah, and all Kinnereth, besides all the land of Naphtali. When Baasha heard of it, he seized fortifying Ramah and remained in Tirzah. Then King Asa made a proclamation to all Judah. None was exempt, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber with which Baasha had built. And King Asa built with them Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. Asa made a deal with one enemy to fend off another enemy. He made a treaty with King Ben-Hadad of Aram in an attempt to avoid the threat from the king of Israel. To entice Ben-Hadad, Asa sent him a huge gift package. The gift had to be huge because Ben-Hadad already had an alliance with Baasha. The gift needed to be impressive enough so that Ben-Hadad would feel compelled to renege on a standing agreement with Baasha. 
Asa therefore piled up the valuable things from his own treasury and from his father Abijah's dedicated things. There were precious silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of God. He collected all of these and sent them off to Ben-Hadad. Actually, at the time, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, had been looking for an opportunity to venture into Palestine to expand his realm of influence. Therefore, he welcomed Asa's offer. Now, Ben-Hadad had a justifiable reason to move into the Palestine territory while helping Judah. Eventually, Ben-Hadad betrayed King Baasha of Israel, breaking the treaty between them and took over many cities in Israel. The cities Ben-Hadad forcefully took over were all on the northern border and were in the opposite end from Ramah where Baasha was doing the fortifying. When Baasha heard the cities in the northern border were being taken over, he stopped fortifying Ramah and returned to Zimri, then the capital of Israel. It was more urgent for Baasha to protect the capital of Israel than threatening Judah. With Ben-Hadad's help, Asa was able to chase away Baasha without a military confrontation from his part. Though it looked like Asa appeared successful, at a casual glance, he actually made a terrible mistake in terms of his relationship with God. He relied on men instead of relying on God. If you recall how he turned to God when facing a war against Zira the Ethiopian, you see a stark contrast in how he handled this external threat involving Baasha. At that time, the seer Hanani went to confront Asa and prophesied against him. In 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 7-9, Hanani prophesied that Asa would have wars then on because he did not rely on God and acted foolishly. Asa became angry with Hanani and made a terrible mistake of putting him in prison instead of listening to what God was trying to tell him through Hanani. He was so enraged with Hanani, he even sought out others connected to Hanani to punish them. Apparently, his rage did not subside after arresting Hanani and putting him in prison. Perhaps Asa thought that the good result justified the means. After all, he was successful in fending off the threat without calling on God. He must have thought that there were things that he could take care of by himself without having to turn to God. To that, Hanani accused him for not relying on God and admonished him for his wrongdoings. Asa did not want to accept what Hanani said and instead became angry at him for speaking against him. His behavior shows how Asa had moved away from God and became distant to God. His disobedience against God is even more evident in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 12. It says, In the thirty-ninth year of his reign, Asa became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Somewhere along the way, Asa became a prideful man. This scripture verse tells us how the same pride he had when he was at war with Baasha, was still with him, even as he was physically suffering. 
he would rather turn to doctors and ways of men instead of putting his trust in God, even though he was critically diseased at the end of his life. Yes, Asa experienced a peaceful time when he had relied on God, but he began relying on his own thoughts and experiences at the end. Sadly, he stopped calling on God and kept God at a distance. Asa died and he was laid with his ancestors in the 41st year of his reign. Asa's funeral scene, as recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 14, shows how greatly Asa was respected by his people of Judah despite his mistakes and weaknesses. It also shows how toward the end of his life he relied more on men and followed the ways of men. The book of 1 Kings and the book of 2 Chronicles record that Asa's heart was for God, but there were times when he did not rely on God and made mistakes. God knew Asa's mistakes and weaknesses, as he knows our mistakes and weaknesses. God delivered Asa with his grace and showed how God was faithfully fulfilling the promise of continuing the throne through the descendants of David. We praise God's faithfulness and look forward to our Lord Jesus as the soon coming King. The story of Kings will continue next time by taking a look at Kings in the Northern Kingdom during Asa's reign in Judah. Have a blessed week.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, Do You Want to Eat at the King's Table? I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. This morning, we're back in our David series, in the life of David. He was an ordinary king, or an ordinary man who became an extraordinary king. And when we talk about him as an extraordinary king, what we know is what made him truly extraordinary was not his resume, but his God. And so as we've been tracking along, we've seen that David is a unique character in the Bible. He is anointed by God as God's king who has come to rule and to save the people of God, not by sword or spear, but in the power of the Lord. King Saul saw David as a threat as he began to win victories and battles, and he tried to kill uh, David for over a decade. But Saul's son, Jonathan, who had everything to gain through David failing, had the throne to gain himself, loved David, 
loved David's God and made a covenant with David. In fact, you'll remember in 1 Samuel 18 that he made a covenant and gave his garments, his kingly garments to David, signifying that he supported God's king. And then in 1 Samuel 20, 14 to 15, after he's made a covenant, he makes a promise and he he says to David, I want you to promise me back that if I survive, if I'm alive, that you will show me steadfast love, the love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house, from my children forever. Because when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth, I want your covenant to still remain with me. See, Jonathan says, even if I'm dead, show steadfast love to my kids. Now, what's interesting there, whenever Jonathan's making a covenant with David, that word to describe the outflow of that covenant is steadfast love. It's a Hebrew word, chesed, which is the same word that's used in our verses this morning repetitively for kindness. The kindness that David is going to show. It is a steadfast love like the love that Jonathan asked him to show to his children. And so here we find that God's covenant commitment to his people in which he attaches himself to them so that they might experience his favor or uniquely experience kindness. That that same kind of kindness is the kindness that David is being asked to show to the children of Jonathan. Uh, You'll remember when God made a covenant with David back in 2 Samuel 7. And it was there that David, in verse 15, God promised him, my steadfast love will not depart from you as I took it from Saul. I have a special kind of committed love with you that is unique from the relationships that I've had with other kings. And it's the same word that is used there. Steadfast love and kindness. Kindness is used three times in our text this morning to describe David's heart for the son of Jonathan. And here what we're going to find in our text is that David, King David, is imaging, if you will, the very steadfast love of God to the son of Jonathan. But Mephibosheth doesn't look like the kind of guy that most people would choose to love. We'll find throughout that Mephibosheth is a very interesting figure. He is one who has lost his ability to walk. He's lost his dad, his inheritance. He's living in a van down by the river in this guy's house. He's on his couch. I mean, this is a guy who seems to have lost everything. Life was rough. But he also saw himself as an enemy of the crown. Now, a big idea this morning is that God's Christ calls lame enemies out of exile to feast at his table. It's a beautiful story. We find that God's Christ, his king, his spirit-anointed king, calls lame enemies out of exile to feast at his table. Now, we'll notice this first in verse 9-1, but before we go there, will you pray with me that God would help us? Father, we come to you this morning, and we ask that you would help our hearts to hear from you. Father, we might look at this story and think that we are nothing like Mephibosheth, but Father, I believe this morning that you have something to tell us by the power of your Spirit through this man and through your Word. Father, show us more of this man. Show us more of your King, King David. Father, not just him, the king that he pointed to, your son Christ. So Father, speak to us, we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we see is this, that David looks to show costly kindness to Saul's house. David is 
looking to show costly kindness to Saul's house. We see that in verse 1. And you'll remember where this falls. Uh, it comes right after 2 Samuel 8. Uh, remember like 8, then 9? And, and in chapter 8, what we find is, is that David is consistently winning all of the battles. In fact, we find that it's repetitively said the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. He was tough. He was a tough king. He was a, a fearsome warrior. He was a king that uh, Saul treated like an enemy before he became king. And so, as Mephibosheth is being introduced, as this son of Saul is being introduced, it's interesting because you start to wonder what David is doing in verse 1. It doesn't look like the way that he should introduce himself to the son of an enemy, one who might be an heir to the throne. You'll notice there what he says. He, he asked this question, and David said this, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, when some scholars read this, they ask whether or not David is actually seeking to do some good to this son of Saul, or whether or not this might instead be some kind of plot or ploy in which he is setting a trap for a potential heir that would compromise his throne. Now, it makes sense for them to ask that question, because if you'll notice in the history of kings and queens, uh, it is very normal, it is very typical, it is business as usual for any king or queen to try to ruthlessly kill anyone who might jeopardize their throne. Just think about the history of Israel. I mean, it was Saul that was day by day trying to kill David because he knew that he was God's anointed son, the king that would take over the throne. In fact, Saul was so bloodthirsty that on one occasion, when he sensed that Jonathan was trying to protect David, he threw a spear at him at his own dinner table. But it's not just Saul. In fact, if you keep reading into 2 Kings 11, you'll find that there, Ahaziah, the king, died. And his mom, Atilia arose and she destroyed all of the royal family, her family, so that she would have the throne. And she reigned over Judah for six years. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a scary queen to have over you. And that's what fallen humanity does. Maybe you've experienced this personally, where fallen authority uses power to exploit rather than to encourage. And we've seen that. You've experienced that. And some say here that that's exactly what David's demonstrating, a savvy political maneuvering. You know, uh, you probably heard it said that you need to keep your enemies close. I mean, your friends close and your enemies even closer, right? And, and they say this is the kind of thing that David is doing. He is trying to protect himself. But don't miss why David says he is initiating kindness towards Saul's house. This is important. He says it's for what? For Jonathan's sake. See, Jonathan made a covenant with David, making him the promise not to cut off his steadfast love, his kindness from his house. Now here, commentator Robert Bergen, he says this, he calls David the supreme Israelite. He's a supreme Israelite example of covenant faithful or faithfulness or chesed. He is the highest virtue in Hebrew society, and he kept his oath to Jonathan even though it ran the risk of hurting his own dynasty. Now here's the the aspect of this kindness that David is showing that I think is instructive for us. King David 
sought to show a costly covenant kindness to Saul's house, just like Jonathan showed to David all of his days. You'll remember that Jonathan laid claim to the uh, crown, and he laid it at the feet of God's Messiah, David, his Christ, his spirit-anointed king. He said, I have the right to the crown, but I'm giving it to you because you are God's king, and I want God's will, not my will, to be done. You'll remember that Jonathan, once he did this, later we found that he lived in committed relationship with David, often risking his life to keep him safe. And this is a a very, very much a reflection of the kind of love and committedness that David had to Jonathan and to his son. See, living in committed relationships is risky and costly. It is not a safe thing to love others. In fact, I bet most of us, if we were this morning to just stop and think about relationships, could be brought to tears by the broken relationships in our lives. You've experienced painful divorces, breakups, abortions, abandonment, trusted friends turning on you. And people leave us when it's too hard or too costly. And in us, I think we realize that in those moments, it feels profoundly wrong. And some of us struggle to ever get back from that brokenness of this world. And even dating relationships. I saw this the other day, have been replaced with this thing called situationships. Have you heard about these? Situationships. It's uh, somewhere, they say, uh, psychologists define them as somewhere between a committed relationship and something more than a friendship. It's something in the middle of that. So it's, it's kind of this idea that you can explore yourself in this relationship with someone without any kind of promises. You're saying that I'm in this relationship today, and I love you more than anything today, but I can't promise you that's the way it's going to be tomorrow. That's the kind of love that our world seems to be building itself upon these days. But catch this, relationships without commitment, don't miss this, they lack the beauty and the glory of a godlike committedness that chases you down. That's what we long for. I think that you and me long for those relationships of commitment where someone does not give up on us, but they actually chase after us with a love and a steadfast love like what God shows. That's what God created our marriages, our parenting, our pastoring, and our church membership for. It's to display the character of God. See, that's the kind of spouse that you want. That's the type of mom and dad that that you were hoping your mom and dad are like. That is the boss that we want, the kind of king that we long for, the kind of authority in our lives that we hunger after. See, that is something that God created us with a longing and a desire for. We all long for a relentless, committed kindness that chases us down to bless us. Don't miss this. King David says, the kindness that's about to flow from him floods down from from heaven to hopeless, lame, exiled enemies. This is beautiful. He says, I'm going to show you a godlike kind of covenant love. And you're going to see just a small picture of what God is like. You see this in verses 2 to 4. See, David's kindness in the Mephibosheth, it shows God's kindness 
Now, David calls up Ziba, introducing Ziba, the highest-ranking, best-connected survivor from Saul's house. He was Saul's servant, but here he comes before David. And, and notice, as Ziba is going to be asked for an heir of Saul, who he zeroes in on in verses 2 to 4. Here's what it says. It says, now, there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Now, later in the book, we'll get to see Ziba a little bit more, and we'll see that he's a pretty smooth operator. He's a guy who always seems to be out for number one, manipulating systems to get as much as he can. And I have to ask, and I'm wondering as I read this here, that maybe we see that evidenced in small part, even subtly, as he's talking about Mephibosheth. I mean, for one thing, you'll know that here, Saul had other sons, but he identifies Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And he knew that Mephibosheth was crippled. Uh, he, he became crippled when he was five years old. You'll remember back in 2 Samuel 4.4 4, that we're told that just as King Ishbosheth died and was murdered, uh, we find that his nurse sort of grabbed him up and began to run with him to take him to safety, but she tripped and fell on him, making him crippled, crippled from the age of five. Ziba likely also knew that David cursed the Jebusites who had mocked David just before he took Zion. You remember that in 2 Samuel 5? You remember there that he said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. He had a kind of anger towards the Jebusites who were calling their protectors lame and blind as though David could not infiltrate them. And I'm wondering in that moment if those scriptures were preparing the way for Ziba to present Mephibosheth before David. Isn't it interesting that he hands over this man as an object lesson for David's kindness? I wonder if David's kindness will be shown to this one, this one whom most of the world would see as a result of his disabilities as being an object of shame, and yet here he is presented as an object lesson for the kindness of the king. Now, did you catch the small change? that he makes in verse 3. A small change about what he's going to do, but with massive implications. Notice, at first he says, I'm going to show kindness to the house of Saul. But here in verse 3, he says, I want to show the kindness of God to him. Not just a general worldly kind of kindness, but a God-centered, a God-flowing kind of kindness to this one. Now, as I look at that, it, it is such an encouragement. Catch this. You'll remember that God had made a covenant with David back in 2 Samuel 7. David has experienced the steadfast love, that covenant love of God. He has been the object of the favor of God. And everybody that's looked on has seen what it looks like for God to have favor on God's king. David says, I, who've experienced the favor of God, and now going to show God-like favor towards this one of the house of Saul. See, God promised to show David steadfast love. And here the same word is used for the kindness that he is going to show. 
King David is going to image God's covenant faithfulness, his steadfast love and kindness to Mephibosheth. And King David says, I'm going to show this kid what God's like. Isn't that good? I want him to see what my God is like. Now, when my God is in covenant with people and they become the objects of his steadfast love, it is a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. But catch this. Everything in Mephibosheth's short resume describes him as a man who seems to have experienced the profound brokenness of this world at no fault of his own. Now, let me just be really clear. When we live in this world, we experience brokenness for all kinds of reasons. It's not just one reason. You know, there are some who experience the brokenness of this world because of their own sin. Some experience it because of the sins of others. Some experience it simply because they make an unwise decision that's not necessarily sinful. And sometimes we experience the brokenness in this world simply because the world is broken. You know, as we look at the coronavirus, there are some who've experienced death, alienated from God, enemies of God, did not love God. And there are those who loved God, loved Jesus deeply and have died. And it's just a demonstration of the fact that this world is full of sickness and brokenness and we need someone to come and do something. And that's Jesus who we're waiting to come back. But until then, we live in a broken world. And Mephibosheth, everything that describes him seems to describe the kind of guy that is not experiencing brokenness because he has sinned, but because the world is broken and it has broken itself all over him. I mean, just think about it. His name means mouth of shame. He didn't give himself that name. Now, his dad, Jonathan, was a mighty warrior who died leaving him to grow up fatherless. He was an orphan. And every time his name is mentioned, this author has to remind us throughout 2 Samuel that he is crippled or lame. Don't forget that he's crippled. In fact, in his commentary, Walter Brueggemann even uh, speaks about this word for crippled. He says it comes from the same word to strike down that describes how David is striking down his enemies. And yet, this man, this, this child was struck down. He was struck down in his feet. He's also part of a witness protection program. He's living in exile in the house of Makir, where he's, I guess, sleeping on his couch in this place called Lodabar. We don't know where it is, but the name literally means pastureless. So everything about this seems like a hopeless destination. He's married with a son which means at this time he's had over a decade to sit and calculate the losses in his life. Have you ever caught up in that, thought about the decision that you should have made but you didn't, the mistake that you made that you're still bearing the consequences of, that deal you should have gotten in on but you missed, and how life is so much different? And it seems like everything in Mephibosheth's resume is losses. He lost his dad, his seat at the king's table, his home, his inheritance, and his legs, almost all of it in in one day. See, Mephibosheth was down as low as you can go, and on the way out, when David the king comes looking, he comes looking for this hopeless, lame, exiled enemy to show him the kindness and steadfast love of God. Do you see the beauty of the heart of God in this? He is looking for the person no one's looking for. And nothing about him makes you think that this is the kind of guy who can help himself. And nothing about Mephibosheth says that he has merited God's favor. Now, maybe at this point you're thinking, well, I kind of agree with, you know, Frank Reagan that God helps those who help themselves. 
you know, you get out what you put in and that kind of thing. But Mephibosheth, the picture of a man who is helpless at the mercy of David, without merit to deserve his favor. He is a broken man. He's the picture of us all spiritually. See, we aren't spiritually lame. We are spiritually dead. We don't just need crutches. We need resuscitation. We need to be brought to life. We need to be raised up, not just from our being broken and laid on the ground, but being dead in the grave. Here we find Mephibosheth is a picture for all of us. Now, if you're a non-Christian, let me just give you a spoiler alert. I'm sure you've had spoiler alerts for movies and that kind of thing. And I would just say that you need regular spoiler alerts when you're preaching through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because you're, you're wondering, what does King David have to do with me? What does Mephibosheth have to do with me? See, King David is really just a picture of a greater king that is to come, King Jesus. See, he is the one, the eternal son, who is foreshadowing Jesus Christ, his eternal son who came to rescue his enemies from his just wrath. We were helpless and dead in our transgressions. And that king died for you to save you from the wrath of God because you couldn't help yourself. That's the message of the Bible. We can't help ourselves. We need the help of one greater than us, our great God. And Jesus is the one who was sent to die for us to save us from God's just wrath because we were helpless and he raised us from himself from the dead so that you would know that he is sovereign, that death does not reign over us and there is hope for the hopeless. I'm just wondering this morning, if you're a, a non-believer and you're listening either here or online, if just maybe you're still hiding in Lodabar. You're still hiding in your own personal uh, Lodabar, where you are not coming to the king because you are fearful. You're hiding from the king because you don't know what he's like. What is this God like? Well, here we get a foreshadowing of what God's like. God is a God who shows covenant kindness to those who repent of their sins and put their confidence and trust in King Jesus. When you do that, he showers you with love from heaven. And maybe you this morning are looking at this from a different way. You're struggling because you have some kind of disability or you love someone with a disability and you wonder if it's evidence of God's disfavor. Well, catch this. This world is broken due to sin and King Jesus is God's answer. He's the answer to the brokenness of this world. In fact, in Mark 8, God healed a paralytic and he forgave his sins. And, and the thing that everybody was astounded by was that Jesus said that he could forgive sins. He's like, who can forgive sins? And he says, oh, you think, you think that's amazing that I can't do that? Well, catch this. I'm going to give this paralytic the ability to walk. And he arrived and walked. And then they were shocked. They were like, wait a minute. He can like, make people walk? But the real point of that story is that this is the only one who can forgive sins. He is a God who can spiritually bring you to God. We see the same kind of thing with a blind man in John chapter 9. You'll remember there that the Pharisees are asking, okay, we got this blind guy. Is it his fault? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And you'll remember what Jesus, how he responded there. It was not this man that sinned or his parents, but what? But that the work of God might be displayed in him. See, in some cultures, disabilities are seen as evidence of God's disfavor or man's sin or something that's wrong with him or them her. But in God's economy, God says there are those who have disabilities that I am working specifically in that my glory might be made known. 
Have you ever thought that maybe the the disability that you have is something that God has allowed to come into your life that you might bring more glory to him than if you didn't have it? That's exactly what happened in John 9. In John 9, this guy's thinking, my my disability was pointless. And Jesus comes and he gives him a theology of, of weakness. And he says, no, I make myself great in weakness. Have you thought that maybe God might be using this evidence of weakness so that he might display his power in and through it? That's the goodness of the good king. See, this is the the same thing that we see with Mephibosheth as the paralytic and the blind man. See, this man, Mephibosheth, would become a testimony of God's grace to God's people and the nations. In fact, think about this. Even this morning, we're talking about this lame, exiled enemy of the people of God, of the king of God, and we are talking about the radical grace that was shown to him. That's the power of his testimony. See, he helps sinners, God does. God didn't come to help the righteous. He came to help the sinners. He didn't come to help those who are in good health. He came to help the broken. God helps the hopeless. But third, notice this. King David restores his crippled enemy exile. He restores them. Did you see that? Now, I'm not sure Mephibosheth actually knew about the secret covenant that Jonathan had made with David. He knew that Saul had tried to kill David and that he represented a threat to the throne. But he doesn't seem to know what David or his God is like. Uh, He's had a tough run of things. You've probably noticed that. His experiences were very difficult. And, And he's probably not sure that things aren't about to get worse before they get better. I mean, when David's chariots pull into the driveway to take him back to David, I'm sure he's thinking, man, I'm in trouble now. But in verse 6, we pick up and we find this. It says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. See, Mephibosheth, he's really just following protocol in laying down on his face before the king. Can you imagine how humbling it must have been in this moment for Mephibosheth, who does not have the use of his legs, to slide down painfully onto his face to honor this king? I'm sure he didn't know what would happen when David called his name. But in verse 7, something he did not expect happened. Notice what he says. He says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father and you shall eat at my table always just think about hearing those words can you imagine the hope that entered that hopeless man's heart when he heard fear not you shouldn't be afraid this is a good day for you I'm a good kind of king. Don't fear. I'm not going to treat you as an enemy. I'm restoring your fortunes. And that's double grace. I'm not going to give you what you think you deserve. Even more than that, I'm going to give you all that's been lost. And can you imagine what good news this was for someone who lived a life riddled with bad news? Uh, One whose resume is bad thing after bad thing after bad thing. And then King David comes and everything changes. See, David showed Mephibosheth what kind of king he was on that day. What kind of king is he? 
He's a kind kind of king, right? He's a kind one. Don't miss this. Good kings, good leaders, and good humans look like God. Christian moms and dads, presidents, bosses, and police officers have been born again that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In the way that we exercise authority, both in the church and outside of the church in the world, should testify to the glory of God and his goodness and his kindness to those that have been entrusted with them. See, God created all humans in Genesis 1 to image him. We are by our human nature image bearers. Now, that does not mean that we have God's nose, right? Doesn't mean that we have the same haircut as God. He's spirit. It means that his invisible attributes and character are on display in the way that we live out life with others. And good authorities look like King Jesus, who is both tender and tough. That's why it horrifies us to see a a police officer kill George Floyd by means of excessive force. It's not just because it was one man killing another. It was because it was a human being created in the image of God, entrusted with the life of another, and actually taking that life, not treating it with the kind of covenant kindness or oath kindness that he was called to. See, good authority should remind us of what King Jesus looks like. Very tough, but also tender. See, he is just and he is kind. And I'm grateful for police officers who protect us in the same way that I'm grateful for good moms and dads and good bosses and good judges. Did you know in those roles that you're actually imaging God and his goodness and kindness? See, they reflect the character of God to us. But what happened to George Floyd shows us that our world is broken and that we need King Jesus to come back to set things right. See, David showed Mephibosheth that God wasn't a monster. What good news? God's not a monster. And did you catch how David's kindness humbled Mephibosheth in verse 8? It says, And he paid homage and said, What is your servant? that you would show regard for a dead dog such as I. How the tables have turned. You might remember back in 1 Samuel 24, 14, one of the many times that David was on the run from Saul. Saul's trying to kill David again, and David asks him, as Saul is walking away, after whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? See, in that moment, David says, I am a dead dog. I am not worth your time. Why are you giving me so much attention? I mean, do you not see I am living in exile, hiding in the desert? I'm not bothering you, and yet you continue to come after me. What do I have to do with you? But here, Mephibosheth says, he is nothing before David's kindness. Nothing in him warranted David's blessing on him. That's why he calls himself a dead dog. He's less than nothing. It's his version of what David said when God made a covenant to show his steadfast love or kindness to him. You remember when David went and sat before the ark and the first thing he says is, who am I that you would show me such grace? But catch this. Those who know grace show grace. Do you see it? David has experienced the radical 
costly grace of God. And God says, my king is going to bear my image and he's going to show that grace to others. See, we honor our commitments as the people of God to our husbands, to our wives, to our children, to our bosses, to our fellow church members, not because we're supposed to, but because in that we display the very character of God when we do. See, that grace restored an exiled, crippled enemy and changed his future and identity forever. And that's exactly what God does with his people. But notice one last thing that is beautiful and glorious. David gives Mephibosheth servants to care for him. Here's what's fascinating in this text. You'll notice every time Mephibosheth is mentioned, it's mentioned that he's crippled. But there's also another word that's mentioned even more, and that's the kindness of God. But there's another word that's mentioned not three times, but four times, and that's the word for table. Four times David says, I want him to eat at my table. He's going to eat at my table. I want this man to eat at my table. And in these last verses, what's glorious is he says, he's going to eat at my table as a son. What a glorious image. See, Ziba learned what kind of king David was on that day too. Maybe he had expected a reward for handing over God's enemy. He hadn't been caring for Mephibosheth up to then. In fact, we know that he speaks of someone else who's caring for him. He just knows where he's at. Ziba was a man of great means. 15 sons, 20 servants. Very powerful, very well connected. But catch the reversal that takes place on this day. At the end of verses 11 through 13, it says this. So Mephibosheth, ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. We don't hear about him from here on out. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet, just in case you forgot. See, if you have a seat at the king's table, That means that you have his protection and his provision and his ear. And David says, he, this Mephibosheth, is now like one of his sons. Think about what that would have meant to this guy who's lived as an orphan without a dad for all of his days. All of a sudden, David says, guess what? You've got a dad now. It's me. I have adopted you. You will eat at my table. You will sit with me. See, (laughs) this is glorious. Ziba hadn't been taking care of Mephibosheth like he did Saul. Makir did, but here, David makes it clear that Ziba is to treat this one like his very own son. I think there's an underlying, guess what? Status as usual, that's not going to do anymore. This is my son, Ziba. You are going to treat him differently from here on out. And not only that, notice that Mephibosheth has a son named Micah. Never mentioned anywhere else, but it shows that God is going to care for his line. Even though this Micah could raise up someday and decide to try to take the throne, David says, I am going to show him too my steadfast love. See, David's kindness extends not only to him, but to his son and his family. And this promises the continuance of the line of Saul. Saul, who tried to kill David for over a decade of his life. It was a costly kind of love. Now, we learn three things here. First is this. I know it's kind of a strange thing to talk about hospitality as we're sitting here with our face masks on and staying six feet apart, but we don't need to forget hospitality and the importance of hospitality and the way that hospitality itself is godlike. 
In fact, it demonstrates the very character of God who invites his people to eat at his table. And just think about this. Jesus came giving us bread to eat from heaven, his very life, which we celebrate in communion. And I hope that in this time of communion or this time of quarantine, that we've been given time to think about and work on how we're eating dinner together at home so that our dinner tables can become more of a mission field a place to encourage weary saints, a place that we can invite those who are far from God in to tell them about what our God is like. Now, this is a great season to do that. Maybe you haven't been having dinner at the table because you've been eating out a lot, but now you haven't been able to eat out a lot, and you're thinking, oh, the restaurants are open, so I need to run back and go eat out. Hey, don't lose what can happen at a dinner table and the kind of ministry that can happen there. I love what Rosario Butterfield says in The Gospel Comes with a House Key. She writes this, those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. Thought about that? Your table, an instrument in the Redeemer's hands for his kingdom. They open their doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with the house key. And this is a woman who was an enemy of God. She was a one who, who did not love God, who was a PhD feminist study major and teacher and professor, uh, living in a, a relationship, an active lesbian relationship, did not love God, met a pastor and his wife, and came to Christ by them just week after week over a matter of over a year, having her over to talk to her about the goodness of God. And that changed her heart so that now she is an instrument of God's grace. The dinner table can change lives. But not only that, second, for those with disabilities, I want to tell you that this isn't the end of the story. Maybe you're wondering if that pain or that disability will ever go away. If wonder why God wouldn't just heal you. you know, I don't have answers to all those questions, but here's what I do know. This is not the end of the story. See, Jesus doesn't just invite the lame to eat at his table. That's not what King Jesus does. No, when Jesus came and he healed the blind and the paralyzed and those who were crippled, he did that as just a foreshadowing of what was to come when his kingdom comes in its fullness. In fact, what we find is that one day, the communion that, you know, when we can safely take it again week after week or month after month or whatever, like once that passes away, it's giving way to a better meal, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And at the marriage feast of the Lamb, you will not need to be helped up with a walker or with a wheelchair or with someone carrying you to come to the table. You'll be able to dance to the table on your own legs. See, we're promised in Isaiah 35 that on that day, those who are lame, we are promised in verse 6 that the lame shall leap like a deer. We're going to jump like deer up the mountain. Some of you are like, I'll never hike again. Oh, the best hikes are yet to come. See, The tongue of the mute is going to sing for joy, and the blind will see God face to face. You know, we recently lost a dear brother, Don Willard, who was blind for many of his days. And yet, on the day that he died, we were able to give praise to Jesus, because for the first time he was able to see, and the first thing he saw was the face of Christ. That's the end that we long for. Your name 
Soul Gospel Ministries has the opportunities for anyone to volunteer in editing, producing the program, or even reviewing the broadcasts at our office. You don't have to be an expert. We are excited to teach anyone that is willing to learn. If you are interested in learning how to be an editor, producer, or even a reviewer, please contact us at 
866-8999 or email us at heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is Praying for the Next Generation. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I'm the host of this program, Praying for the Next Generation. Do you know what it means to be His witness? A well-known scripture, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. The Greek word for witness is martus which means the one who provides personal testimony or verification, whose life and actions testify to the worth and effect of faith. So then, how do we become His witnesses? This verse teaches us that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, and then we shall be His witnesses. The Holy Spirit is the promised gift from the Father given to Christ's disciples, all whom God has called and who believe in Jesus. He is the Spirit of resurrection that raised Jesus to life. His Spirit lives in us, empowers us to bear witness to the gospel, and fills us with power that enables us to fulfill His divine purposes. My beloved, have you ever wondered what kind of power is given to us? The Greek word for power in verse 8 is dunamis, which means miraculous power, might, ability, moral excellence of soul, and power to achieve by applying the Lord's inherent abilities needed in every area of life. How then do we receive this miraculous power? The Greek word for receive is lambano, which means to take, to seize, to take possession of by aggressively and actively accepting what is available and offered. Lambano emphasizes the assertiveness of the receiver. Beloved, have you received and taken possession of this mighty power as you live a life as His witness, reflecting His teachings and manifesting His nature to this world? The Greek word for manifest is phanero, which means to make clear, visible, to make known, and to reveal. Let's unite our hearts and pray that God will raise up the next generation who will surrender all to Christ and transform this world as His witnesses, manifesting His holy name by the power of the Holy Spirit and His divine truth. Heavenly Father, we worship You with lifting up our hands as our hearts explode with praise and thanksgiving for sending us Your Holy Spirit. You are the Spirit of holiness and perfect expression of the truth. You teach us all things, set us free, guide us into all truth. 
save us from our enemies in supreme victory, and fill us with your mighty power. You are the spirit of resurrection, the very spirit that raised Jesus to life. What a great honor and joy it is that you would choose to live in us as your temple. Holy Spirit, you are the counselor, comforter, encourager, intercessor, and helper. May the glory of your holy name be the center and passion of our hearts. Lord, we cry out for the next generation, creating them new clean hearts and renew a right and steadfast spirit within them. Through your kindness, lead them to let go of their pride, being in control of their own lives and the attitude of entitlement. Fill them with your pure thoughts and holy desires ready to please you. Open the eyes of their hearts and shine the light of your truth into their innermost beings with your divine power. Jesus, show them how to live in union with you and follow each step in perfect sync with your Spirit. Teach them how to conduct themselves by walking in your footsteps in humility, obedience, and submission. Bless them to bear the abundant fruit of your Holy Spirit, divine love in all expressions, joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart, and self-control. Lord, you are the originator of creativity. Bless this generation with innovative minds, creative ideas, new imaginations, and divine skills in your artistic craftsmanship, so they will maximize current technology and social media platforms to proclaim your gospel with boldness and wisdom, and further your work in ways this world has never seen before. Father, ignite your kingdom life within them, a fresh fire within them, the Holy Spirit within them, and transform them from the inside out. Revive them with the power of your living word and the impartation of your spirit and your gifts. Raise up this generation as your witnesses, representing your purity, power, and love, demonstrating your true nature and your glorious kingdom to this world. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.
our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.